0: Good morning. We are starting the book of Nehemiah today. So if you uh, turn in your Bibles there, I've uh, been excited about uh, starting this book. I think this book's going to be a blessing to us, a challenge to us as a church family. And uh, we're Lord, Lord willing, the plan is to do a chapter a week from Uh, the book of Nehemiah, and we are going to go through this book together. Uh, And I think we've got a a missionary in October and a missionary in November. Uh, So we'll have a couple breaks. But other than that, we are just going uh, to plow through this book and excited for this. So the year is 446 B.C. Nehemiah is in captivity. Nehemiah was probably born during the captivity. And we studied this when when we studied the book of Daniel about how that, that Babylon came and they uh, they 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 brought they took captives from Jerusalem took them all the way back to Babylon and then after the ba- after Babylon after uh, Babylon's empire uh, the Medo-Persians came in and they conquered Babylon and so we just really know it from history as the Persian Empire because even though the Medes started out as stronger the, the Persians really just absorbed that kingdom and became more powerful. And so this is the setting, right? Nehemiah is a man who is, again, more than likely born during captivity, and he is now serving uh, in the Persian Empire. Well, word's going to get back to Nehemiah about the condition of the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, where God's people were, where Nehemiah's people were from, and and it's going to absolutely crush Nehemiah when he hears about the state and the condition of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is really in a pretty good spot. I mean, he's a captive and obviously he's gone through quite a bit. But, I mean, he is now, and we'll, we'll learn about this more in more depth next week. But he is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And he is, he's got, you know pretty good job now he's the cupbearer, and part of what that job entailed it wasn't the only thing but part of what that job job entailed was to protect the king if if someone tried to poison him or assassinate him now artaxerxes this guy was no angel this guy made enemies this guy was ruthless this guy killed anybody in his way including his own family Uh, so this guy had a lot of enemies and so if he was going to be poisoned, well, he had a cupbearer and the cupbearer would go first. Like he would, Nehemiah was, that, that was his job. And so, yeah, you could say that was a high risk job. But on the other hand, there was a lot of benefits to this job. Nehemiah was comfortable. Nehemiah was, was really in a spot in his life where really we would look at that and think, man, he, he's okay. He's, he's got it made. But yet, Nehemiah is going to hear news about the state of the city of Jerusalem, and it's absolutely going to crush him. And Nehemiah is going to be so burdened by this news. So what was taking place was, under the Persians, they were allowing groups of Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Now, this happened in a couple different phases. So, there was a man by the name of Zerubbabel, a man by the name of Ezra that we read about in the book of Ezra right before Nehemiah. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah, for the longest time, that was combined as one book. Um, but we split those books—well, we didn't do it, but someone split those books up. And, and but, but you can read about how the Ezra and Zerubbabel— these were men that led people back to Jerusalem from captivity. And it was really under Ezra that, that uh, the worship of God uh, began to then come back in Jerusalem. And, and you just see in God's providential plan that he was going to rebuild this city, Jerusalem. He was going to rebuild the, the city of God's people there in Jerusalem. But before the rebuilding of the city was going to take place... 14 years prior, a man by the name of Ezra is going to go. And Ezra is going to be primarily responsible to lead God's people back to worship again of the one true God. And so you see different waves of the cap, some of the captives going back. And under Ezra, the temple was repaired. Worship was restored. And what we see is a principle here that worship of the true God is what is foundational ...for the society that God wants for people to have. A nation's culture and laws and norms, it flows from the religion of the people in the city. If you want a city that's honest and industrious and just and good, that city must first worship the God of heaven. And this is why Ezra goes years prior before Nehemiah to restore the worship of the one true God. So... Ezra's back, Zerubbabel, even before that, goes back. And now 12 to 14 years after that, Nehemiah is going to get word from one of his friends or could could be his actual physical brother or just a, 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 a friend, a close uh, person to Nehemiah. Hananiah is going to tell, tell him about the state of the Jews there in Jerusalem. And it's going to absolutely crush Nehemiah and shatter him. Now, this shouldn't have been uh, new news to Nehemiah. I mean, the city had been in disrepair and disarray for almost a hundred years at this point. I mean, under Ezra, they kind of started to rebuild the wall and then they had to stop that this, with the different uh, circumstances. And so this shouldn't have been just really shocking news to Nehemiah. But yet when he hears details, when he actually hears firsthand from someone who who, who is aware of what's going on, this news is going to absolutely break his heart. His heart is then going to get stirred and broken, which is going to lead Nehemiah to prayer and going to then lead him to action. And what we're going to find about Nehemiah is that he is going to be willing to risk everything To follow the call of God. That Nehemiah is going to be willing and is willing to sacrifice much. To go to build something out of just runes. See, there were no comfortable jobs that were awaiting in Jerusalem. I mean, nobody was really just signing up to get transferred there. There was nothing but a pile of rubble and runes. In Jerusalem. But yet God is going to call Nehemiah out of this place of really comfort and ease. To go and to rebuild this city. God's going to call him to leave the comfortable. To step out. And to do what God is putting on his heart to do. And a lot of times that's how God works, isn't it? That God will disrupt our comfort. God will disrupt what's just the normal flow of life when he calls us and he leads us to do something many times. Many times it means to leave what's comfortable. Now, sometimes physically it means to leave. Sometimes it just means to step out of that that spiritual comfort zone that we're in, that God calls us to do. This is what God called Nehemiah to do. This is often what God calls us to do. To step outside of what we're used to, step outside of what we've grown comfortable doing, and to step out and follow God's call. This is what Nehemiah does. I think about when we planted and started Cross Point Baptist Church. Coming up on eight years next month, we'll celebrate eight years as a church. And I remember some of the conversations that I had with people when we were looking to plant. Conversations with some of you that are in this room, some, some that will be in the room at eleven. And I remember in those conversations trying to convince people to come and help us plant Crosspoint. I mean, I don't think I used those words. It was more like, would you pray about this if God would lead you to do this? But deep down, I was like, man, we need some help to start Crosspoint. And and I remember those conversations saying, you know what? I have nothing to offer you and I have no promises for you. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know if it's going to be successful. I don't know if it's going to fail or not. I don't know if this, but I felt and deep down knew that this was God's call and this was God's leading. So I knew that God had something for us, but I didn't know exactly how that would look. And we came almost eight years ago. We came with a few people, not a lot of people, no building. Not very much resources. Definitely not much money. Here's a picture of the very first Bible study that we had. It was in our house. We didn't even have a space yet. This was in, I think the Van Wise cut out early before the picture. Or maybe they were gone. But this is what, this is what the, our, our church started with. That was the very first Bible study that we had. Now half of these guys we sent over to Rock Island to plant a church. But this is where we started. We didn't have much, but... We had a burden, we had a call of God to come to this city, to plant a church here in this city. We started out, I think there's a picture of our first service. This is one of our first services at the hotel. And I was trying to look through the pictures and find a, uh, this was actually a a preview service, I think, right before our grand, grand opening Sunday. I was trying to find some pictures of just like a typical week there at the hotel... Where, you know, there wasn't a lot of, of people. But you know what? Those aren't the pictures you post on social media, right? You only post the ones when the room is full. So I, I found one of the preview service. But I remember some of those weeks, no, no joke, like a few minutes before service was starting. And there weren't that many people. Some of you guys remember that. There weren't that many people. I remember, you know, frantically going out to the hallway and pacing and looking out the doors. Wondering, like, is anybody going to come? But, but those were... The, the beginning days. But it, here, here's a picture of one of the nurseries that we had. I guess even in those days we had a lot of babies. But that was our, our, our nursery setup. up. And then, you know, it, it wasn't all bad though. Because it was, I mean, it was good. But it wasn't all challenging. The, the baptisms were pretty cool. Because we got to use the, uh, the pool there in, in the hotel. I think there's a picture of Casey. I asked permission if I could, if I could show it. But these were the, the beginning days of, of Crosspoint. You know, by, by human standards, it really wasn't much, but yet we knew like this was a call of God, that God was leading us to leave the comfortable, to go and to plant a church. And so this is why my heart rejoices to see all that God has done and all that God is doing. Amen. Amen. That what God is doing in our church, it's not because of our goodness or our planning or our our strategy. It's because of his grace. It's because God put a burden and a call upon us to come and to plant Cross Point Baptist. Because it was God's will, God's plan. And that's why it excites me to see what God is doing. To see all that God has doing. And we rejoice in that. But here's the thing. The work isn't done. I mean, there's still a task at hand for us as a church to keep God who keeps leading us to leave that comfort zone. Well, it's what we did a couple years ago when we added a second service on, on Sundays. I mean, that wasn't a decision out of ease or convenience to start another. I mean, you know, it was a full room. We were fine. I mean, for crying out loud, it was like the average size church in the United States right now is 75 people. And I assure you that number is only going down. But it's like, hey, we're good. You know, we've got well above that average number. Let's just coast and relax. But yet we as a church, it wasn't just me. It was our church. We felt and we prayed and we talked and we planned and felt God was leading us to add a second service. Just recently, our church voted unanimously to purchase a property a mile away from here. And it wasn't a decision made out of just ease. It wasn't a decision just made because, you know, we just, you know, wanted uh, something else. To, no, this was something we felt God was leading us to do. Because there's still work that I believe, that we believe, God wants to do with us and through us here in the Quad Cities, specifically here in West Davenport, that God has called us here and that God is going to provide, that God is going to use us. See, the reality is that when you look statistically at the Quad Cities, it's, it's not great. That the Quad Cities is ranked 15th in the nation of the most unchurched and most post, uh, post-modern cities. Now, that may come as a surprise to some of you. They're like, oh, no, there's no way that could be. Like, we drive by all these buildings, all these churches all over. But many of those churches, many of those big, ginormous, eloquent, beautiful buildings are are sitting empty. And the numbers are a little bit staggering. But I don't take that as discouraging news. When I look at that, when I see those statistics... I look at that as something that actually tells us and shows us that God is going to do something great here in the Quad Cities. Amen. That there is work to do. And not just our church, because there's some really, really good churches here in the Quad Cities, but not enough. Not enough. There's still more work that God is calling us to do. God is raising us up for this. See, this tells us that like Nehemiah, that there's still a task in front of us. This means when we see statistics like that, that that means that probably a lot of our neighbors don't know Christ. Probably means a lot of the people that we work with don't know Christ or maybe some that that do, but they're just displaced and they don't have a church family, which is not how God would want for believers to to operate. He wants us as as believers to be connected and part of a life-giving community. And what this shows us is that we as a church have more work to do for the glory of God. That there are, that we need more room for people to have a place to gather. We need more leaders who can disciple and walk with people on their faith journey. We need more people that God is going to raise up to give, both financially and of our time and of our work and of our effort. We need more volunteers to hold babies, to teach kids. We need more people who are going to clean facilities and make coffee and love and serve the people that God brings. To us, See, there's a mountain to climb. There's a wall to build. Not a physical wall, but we do have a church to build. A building to build. And God's going to do it. And God's gonna, God is going to provide for it. Why? Because there's still souls that need to be saved. There's still a work of God that I believe is going to happen here in our city. And here's the thing. God may do it with a great sweeping revival where just in the matter of months... Or a year, a great awakening happens. God's done that in the past. God can do that again if that's what God chooses to do. Or it could just be that like the efforts of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, it's going to be over about a hundred year period before the city and the temple and the wall is rebuilt. Now, once Nehemiah starts on the wall, it goes quick. But the overall effort of this city being restored... Many, many scholars think that this was over a period of about a hundred years. See, it wasn't going to happen overnight. And many times, God moving and working, it's not just an overnight thing. It's over a process of time. Of God's people being faithful to God's cause. There's ups and downs during that time. But yet God is moving and working. And God calls us. Not in the exact same way like Nehemiah, but similar in the sense God calls us to rebuild things that are broken. And this kind of work requires churches to have a multi-generational vision that's going to include our children and our grandchildren. Where down the road, and if, if, if God sees fit to give me a long life, there'll come a point when... I'm going to step down from not from ministry or not from serving God, but from actually doing what I'm doing now. And that's totally fine. And it'll be our children and our grandchildren that will lead the church, that will continue on in the ministry of God. And that's the kind of vision that Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah had to have. And that's the vision that we must have. Why? Because the call is clear and the work is before us and God will equip us, and God will empower us. Let's pray. Just kidding. That was just the introduction. All right, Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hechaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu. This is probably the month of December. In the 20th year, I was in Shushan, the palace. So, Nehemiah is here in, in Shushan. This is about 150 miles away from really the, the capital city of, of Babylon. Well, again, once again, this was at the time now the Persians were under rule. And, and this, was probably, this was probably kind of the, the winter palace for Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is there. Nehemiah is his right-hand guy. And, and Nehemiah is, is here. And, and he's going to get word about the condition of the state of Israel. So interesting to note that that Artaxerxes was probably the the stepson of Queen Esther that we read about. So Esther and Daniel um, and uh, Nehemiah, these individuals more than likely would have crossed paths. These were contemporaries of one another. And so how did Nehemiah get this position? How did a Jew get this position of a cupbearer to Artaxerxes? And, and I'm convinced, and this is a little guesswork, but it's probably because of the influence of Esther that she had there in Persia. And so Nehemiah is the cupbearer here and is the right-hand man of, of King Artaxerxes. We'll talk a little bit more uh, next week about just what that looked like what that meant being the cupbearer and what that was all about but Nehemiah is there and Nehemiah is going to ask a simple question to uh from Hanani and this is absolutely going to change everything for Nehemiah. So he says then Hanani one of my brethren came he and certain men of Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. So he's going to ask a question. And this response is going to floor Nehemiah. They said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province, they are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, once again, this shouldn't be shocking news to Nehemiah, but it's like when he hears specifics, it floors him. It crushes them. Hananiah says, listen, things aren't well, actually. You know, now that you asked Nehemiah, let me just share with you, things aren't going good. See, Ezra had gone back and there was worship being restored. But the problem was the city was left unprotected. The, the, the gates and the walls were broken down. And the enemies of, of God's people would, could really just come in and discourage and, and, and destroy the people of God. And this, this hurt Nehemiah. This broke his heart. Here's what Nehemiah does. It came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Man, this hits some hard. Have you ever been there? Have you ever, you ever gotten news about something that Just absolutely devastates you. You ever gotten that phone call that you weren't expecting? And it honestly feels like a gut punch. I mean, honestly feels like you're just your bell got rung and you're almost in a state of shock. Because of news you've received. This is Nehemiah. Man, man, this hit him hard. This devastated him. He said he had, it was so devastating. He just sat down and he just mourned. He's lamenting. He's grieving. And a lot of times, you know, news like this, it comes unexpected. See, for most of us, most of us in here, we've, we've lived a little bit now and we've seen a lot of things. We've seen a lot of tragic things. We've seen a lot of difficult things. And We almost get to the point, and maybe I'm just confessing my own feelings here, but for me, I kind of was at a point where it's like, you know what? Not wanting tragedy to happen, not wanting something bad to happen, but I'm kind of prepared. There's nothing that's really going to shock me. Nothing really going to devastate, nothing's really going to catch me off guard because, man, I've just, and some of it may be the, the line of work that I'm in. And, you know, a lot of times I talk to people at, at the worst times in their life in the worst cases, the worst scenarios. And, but, man, then all of a sudden something hits you that you are not expecting. And it absolutely devastates you. We know what that's like because we live in a fallen world. Maybe for some of you, that's the road you're walking down at this very moment. This is Nehemiah. Man, he's floored. His heart is broken at the condition of God's people. His heart is broken at the state of Jerusalem. God's city that had been broken down for years and years And and yes, there's some that went back. And perhaps he thought that that under Zerubbabel and Ezra that things were getting better now. And that things were in a better spot, a better condition. And when he hears that the city's broken down, he's devastated by this. So what does he do? He prays. He mourns. He laments over this. But then he's going to fast and he's going to pray. And this prayer is powerful. This prayer is beautiful. And here's the application for us. When we face those moments of devastation and shock, what we can do with that is bring it to God, the only one who can do anything about it. But in your mourning and in your lament, it's okay. Like you don't have, in fact, it's almost, it's almost dangerous and bad. If you don't experience that lament, if you don't experience and express that grief, there's nothing wrong with expressing that grief. There's nothing wrong to be, to to, to feel the pain of living in a broken world. There's nothing wrong to mourn, to weep over people. And this is what Nehemiah is doing. But Nehemiah didn't stop with that. Nehemiah is going to go to God he's going to fast, he's going to pray. And what we find here in these next few verses is one of the most powerful prayers that we read in scripture. And this prayer is something that's going to tell us a lot about what Nehemiah thought and knew about God. He says this, I, verse number five, he said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God. And we're terrible here. Another word could be awesome. And yet that's not even sufficient because we use that word very flippantly and, and loosely, I should say like, oh, that's awesome. Like it's really not awesome. Awesome is this is amazing. This is in awe. Uh, and, and that's the word that that Nehemiah uses here. Yareh is the Hebrew word. It means to stand in amazement and awe. And Nehemiah is approaching God, recognizing who God is. Recognizing who God is and what this tells us is this that after all Nehemiah had gone through after all Nehemiah had experienced being in a godless pagan nation working for a godless pagan vicious bloodthirsty king seeing all that experiencing all that Nehemiah had not lost his faith in God because Nehemiah is approaching God in prayer. He's saying, "O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible or the great and awesome God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. So we see that he is dependent upon God. He knew that in this situation, only God could help. Only God could do something about this. And in prayer, that's what it does. It it, it not only it, it not only causes us to go ...to God, the one that can change things, the one that can change people. But it is also an acknowledgement that we, before God, are humbly saying, God, this is way bigger than me. You are mighty. You are powerful. You are awesome. And Nehemiah goes to God, and he says this, "...let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant..." Which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servant. So he's saying, listen, God, would you please hear me? Would you please see me? God, you're the only one that can change this. Some of you right now, that's where you're at in life. There's situations that that only God can change. Only God can work these things out. And Nehemiah had faith in that. That it was God alone, God alone, that could change this situation. And that's who he went to, to God. We see that in in prayer, he is praising God for who God is. But now he's going to get into, he's confessing sin. He says, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commanded thy servant Moses. So what we see here is a tremendous leadership principle in the life of Nehemiah. He is a leader that is taking responsibility. I, I mean, think about this. Nehemiah wasn't the one responsible for Years and years ago, God's people going into captivity. I mean, he was probably not even born. If he was, he would have been extremely small. But more than likely, he was born during the captivity. I mean, this isn't his fault. But yet, Nehemiah has taken responsibility. This is what good leaders do. This is what godly leaders do. They don't shift the blame to everyone else. Maybe you've worked for somebody like that where it was just they constantly... Blamed everybody else for the bad. But then they took all the credit for the good. You ever work for somebody like that? It's probably really frustrating. That's not a good leader. That's not a godly leader. That's not what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah is saying, yes, I'm, I'm burdened about the sin. The sin of, of the Jews, But he's saying, but not they. We. We. He's saying, you know what, in me and my father's house, we're just as guilty. We're just as guilty of this. Now, I'm not saying that it, it's, things are necessarily your fault, that you need to be the scapegoat for something that you didn't do. However, leaders take responsibility and say, you know what, it may not be my problem, but I'm making it my problem because I have a burden in my heart because I truly care about the people of God. And this is Nehemiah nehemiah is confessing sin and this shows by the way this shows great humility by admitting and confessing sin but then we see his prayer we see this confidence in his prayer he says remember i beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant moses saying if he transgress i will scatter you abroad among the nations but if he turn to me and keep my commandments and do them though.'" They were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence. I'll bring them to the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So now Nehemiah in his prayer, he is confident in God. He's remember, or he's reminding God of his promises, not because God needs reminding, not because God has forgotten But see, we see this is powerful in prayer where Nehemiah is agreeing with God, agreeing with God's word. And he is in prayer acknowledging that he knows the promises of God. Because Nehemiah knows that God is a covenant keeping God. In other words, God is a God who keeps his promises. So what that tells me, what that tells you is this, that yes, God kept his word to his people thousands of years ago and we have the same covenant keeping God for us today. Now, some of the promises specifically made to Israel, I'm not saying that we can claim every one of those promises, but the application still rings true. That God is a faithful God, that God is a God who is a covenant keeping God, that God is a God who keeps his word. And Nehemiah is praying now with confidence saying, God, you're a covenant keeping God. And Nehemiah is quoting scripture from Exodus and also from Leviticus. He's saying, God, I, you made this promise to us. You made this promise to us. And he said that, that if we didn't keep your word, that you would scatter us, but he's reminding him saying, God, we have disobeyed in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 30. God says to his people, listen, if you follow me, you keep my commandments you follow my, my ways. You're gonna, there's blessings. But if you turn away from me. If you serve other gods and you worship other gods. It, I'm going to come to you. And if you don't repent and you keep going down this path. I'm going to allow other nations to come in. And, and I'm going to scatter you. But, but if you will repent. If you will confess. He says I'm going to restore you. And this is the, the promise that Nehemiah is claiming. This is the promise that Nehemiah is holding on to the, the, the hundreds of years prior where God made this covenant, made this promise to Moses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Nehemiah is saying, God, we've disobeyed you. We've been scattered in captivity, but God, I am confessing. It's starting with me that I am confessing. I am repenting. And he's asking God to restore them. He says, if you Return to me and keep my commandments and do them. These promises is, it's a conditional promise. And Nehemiah is saying, God, we confess. God, we repent. Verse number 10, he says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let thine thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. He's saying, and he uses, he keeps using this phrase, God, we're your servants. We're your servants. He's recognizing who God is. He's recognizing who he is. He uses this word servant. God, I'm just here to serve you. Eight times he uses that in these these verses. Nehemiah knows he's serving God and he wants to join God on the mission and plan that God has for him. Verse 11, he says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's recognizing that he knows. And what we're going to see next week is Nehemiah prays. But now Nehemiah is going to take action. He's going to go before King Artaxerxes. And he says this. He says, God, would you grant him mercy? Would you grant me mercy in the sight of this man? Now, when he approaches Artaxerxes, like he's going to be very respectful towards him. As he should and as he needs to be. But Nehemiah recognizes that, you know what, this is just a man. People look to Artaxerxes as God, as a God. Nehemiah is recognizing he's just a man. And that God is, God is over this man. That God has power over this man. That, that the proverb that we read, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, God turns his heart how he wants. God, God's in control of this powerful man, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah recognizes that and he's saying, God, would you give me favor? God, I need you to grant this favor because I want to take action. And God, you're leading me to take action. But first, Nehemiah prays. He says, I was the king's cupbearer, which will lead us into chapter two next week. But a few applications and we'll be concluded. What we see, this amazing prayer in Nehemiah, we learned some things from this. Number one is this. Prayer makes us wait. Prayer makes us wait. Nehemiah is crushed by this news. And you know what he does? He mourns, he fasts, and he prays for four months. Because chapter 2, it's going to shed a lot of light on this. It's going to tell us that now four months later is when he's going to approach our deserts. He's the king. And he's going to be able to approach him with boldness but at the same time fear like he's got this courage of like i'm gonna do the right thing god i'm scared to death please help me but this prayer prayer causes us to wait on god see now eventually it's gonna lead us to take action amen like and 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 that's where it's like that that balance of you know there's the, the 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 prayers and then there's the planners and it's like i think that we see both in scripture But this prayer, it causes him to just wait. He's just lamenting. He's just praying. And he's going to do this for four months. See, we want to just get on with things and get over things. Okay, I'm going through this or I've been through this and man, let's just hurry up and get it over with. That's not how God works. Many times it's agonizing in prayer. Many times it's just walking through a path of lament and grief and prayer. He waits four months. See, we want to just get over the grief, get over the pain as quickly as possible. And by the way, people expect us to do that. Just get over it. You know, oh, somebody died, you know, three weeks later. You know, it's like, get on with life. But that lament and that grieving, many times it takes time. And prayer causes us to wait on God. That prayer causes us to trust God. See, prayer makes us patient by waiting on him. And Nehemiah, God's going to use Nehemiah to do something. But before he's going to do a work for God, God's going to do a work in him. That before God uses us to do something, God first does something in us. And this is what this prayer is doing. Prayer causes us to wait. Secondly, prayer clears our vision. Nehemiah is now going to, next week we're going to talk about his approach to King Artaxerxes. He's going to approach with a plan. He's going to approach with a strategy. He's going to approach with a definite vision of what he's hoping and praying and needing to happen. And this is what prayer does. The other day, maybe a few days ago or a week ago, one of the mornings was super foggy and we don't get a ton of fog, but some of you guys drove through that. It's, It's hard to see. It's hard to see much. And I think that many times with prayer, what it does is it lifts some of that fog. It clears our vision and clears our mind. Now, if you're like me, if we think if we have any inkling that we think God wants us to do something, it's like, what are we waiting for? Let's do it. And there is a time to take action. But there's also a time to just pray and wait on God. God, make this vision clear. God, give us clarity of this. And, and, and we're not, doesn't mean that, that, that it doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard or difficult or challenging. Because Nehemiah is going to be terrified when he steps before Artaxerxes, but yet he had a clear vision of what God was leading him to. And this is what prayer does. Prayer causes us to just wait on God. By the way, part of the lament and the grieving is part of healing. Now it's not just lamenting and grieving. It's lamenting and grieving and praying and agonizing with God in prayer. But that's part of it. Some of you are frustrated right now. And, and maybe it's old wounds that are, that, 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 That you feel like, man, the scab just got ripped off of it. And what I'm proposing is maybe you didn't truly take time to lament and grieve and pray on it. It's okay. Prayer causes us to wait on God. Prayer clears our vision. And then what we're going to see next week is this. That prayer activates our faith. Prayer is going to cause us to then take action. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to take action. Nehemiah has everything to lose. But yet this burden that God placed on his heart was too great. God is calling him. God has actually positioned him to take action. The burden led to prayer, which then led to action, which is where we will pick up next week in Nehemiah chapter 2. As we close, though, let me ask you this. What is it that you and I have become numb to? What is it that should give us a burden, that should cause us grief and a godly sorrow about, that we've become just numb to? The condition of of our society, sin in the lives of others. How about this? Sin in our own life? That it should break our heart. It should grieve our heart, but have we become numb to it? Maybe that's what happened with Nehemiah, that he had just become numb to what was going on. And then God just broke his heart about the reality of the condition of of Jerusalem. What is it that we've become numb to? What is it that breaks our heart? Who is it that we need to be burdened for, that we need to pray for? Because we know this, though a different situation thousands of years ago than where we're at now... But the principle is still the same. We still have a covenant-keeping God. We have an pow- all-powerful God that can change things, that can change people. Go to God with it. Nehemiah is just going with an honest, open, raw prayer before God. He's recognizing who God is. He's recognizing who he is before God. And he's recognizing that it's God alone that can change it. He says, God, you have to intervene here. And spoiler alert, next week, God will intervene. And God's going to give him favor with the king. Let's pray.